It's not to make you feel like you need to run 13 miles next year. Um, although expect me to do that next year, because I will. Um, hey, welcome. Great to have you guys at South Valley. We are in the second week of our series in the book of James. And this is an incredible book. As I said in first service, those of you who have been Christians a while um, probably have a, an opinion about the book of James. Some people love this book. And those are typically people who like to feel badly about themselves. <laughs> and then other people find this book incredibly challenging and, and difficult. But it's a powerful and important book. And so I'm, I'm really excited that we're spending this time here in this book. Um, Isaac talked last week a lot of the details surrounding this book and its author. And so if you weren't here for that sermon, I really recommend that you go back and listen to that. Um, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time today. But just know a couple key things. One, its author... Um, most people agree is not James the Apostle, the brother of John, but James the half-brother of Jesus, who we know from the book of Acts ended up becoming one of the key figures, probably the central leader in the early church in Jerusalem. And so this is a letter written very early to the church at the very beginning to Christians who were just becoming aware of who the Messiah was and, and forming these new communities. It's a very practical, direct book. There are parts of it that are hard for us to stomach, but man, we got to just lean into those. Now, before we get into the text for today, I want you guys to think about something with me. So let me ask you, how many of you guys are teachers of some kind here? You teach in a school or something like that? It turns out all our teachers go to first service, or most of them do. You guys who raised your hands, your community is all at first service. <laughs> just kidding. Um, now, I, teachers, wonderful, incredible, difficult, and important job. Um, one thing I've noticed from all the teachers that I know, kind of regardless of subject or grade level, is that there are times of the year when homework grading and test grading become overwhelmingly brutal. Is that true, teachers? Yeah? No? I see a lot of nodding, but you're all very... Yeah. <laughs> so homework, at certain points of the year, again, becomes the thing where it's like, man, I have a full-time job going and teaching, and then I take home another full-time job and buy all the red pens that the local stores have for sale and just pour myself into homework, and it's brutal. And so I want you to imagine with me that there's one brave young teacher who decides one day out of nowhere, you know what? I should be teaching. That's where my energy and my time should be going. I'm wasting all my time grading homework. I'm not going to do any homework anymore. I'm not giving out any homework. I'm not giving any tests ever again. I'm just going to teach, and my students aren't going to have to do any homework or testing. Now, what would happen in real life if somebody did that? They would be fired. Help me out here. Yeah, they'd be fired. But just imagine, just for the sake of, of the thought experiment, that instead of getting fired, this one teacher inspires a bunch of other teachers. And everybody sees her example, and they start saying, you know what, that's right. We should just be teaching the information, and they don't need to, these students don't need to be wasting their time doing homework and tests. And so a whole coalition, a whole movement of no homework teachers forms up. And all the students in the room right now are like, please, Lord, let Sam be a prophet at least for today, and let this come to pass. But like any new movement, not everybody's on board, not everybody likes it, and a whole other coalition of teachers forms in opposition to that and says, no, if you don't give tests and you don't give homework, how are we ever going to know if students are even learning anything? In fact, homework is so important. In opposition to you guys, we're only going to give homework. We're not going to lecture. We're not going to teach anything. Only homework and tests all the time. And so you have two completely different armies of teachers, one of which is no homework and one of which is all homework. Now, how well would that work? Terrible, right? Terrible idea. Not going to work. And imagine being a student in a world like that. Depending on the teacher you have, you'd either be a student who never learns anything and only ever does homework, or you'd be a student 
who never has to do any homework and only sits there and kind of takes in information if you want to, and you don't even necessarily have to. James, in today's passage, which is the second half of chapter one, is going to start talking about a theme that you're going to see recur over and over again in this book, and that's the theme of the importance for Christians of being people who both hear and do. That Christians are not supposed to be unbalanced people who only hear or only do. Christians, like real students in real life, need both. And so as we jump in today, I want you to keep that kind of theme in mind because we're going to see James introduce it and then develop it to this incredible crescendo that's one of the most famous verses in the entire New Testament. It actually starts off with another famous verse from James 1.19. He says, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now, I don't like this verse because there's not a person on the planet who knows me who would describe me this way. And how many of you guys are like really just genuinely, just by temperament and personality, slow to speak? You're a listener, you're quiet, you're like, we're not the people who raise our hands, Sam, <laughs> by definition. I'm not this way. I am quick to speak, slow to listen. And I think as a culture and just kind of a society, the, the climate that we're living in right now is made up almost entirely of people who are the opposite of this. And you can really see that in one place in particular. Anybody know, guess what I'm thinking of? Yeah, somebody said Twitter. That's more specific than I was thinking, but very true. I'm talking about just the internet in general. If you go to the internet, do you see a lot of people who are quick to listen and slow to speak? Here, this, this, this webcomic called XKCD illustrates this perfectly. It's a, a guy's wife is saying, are you coming to bed? And he says, I can't, this is important. She says, what? He says, someone is wrong on the internet. <laughs> How many of you guys, you go online and this is what you see. You see people whose job it is to be quick to respond. I mean, that's how the game is played. It's all about speed. It's about getting your words in before the other person can get your words in, filling it up with as much kind of anger and reactionary vitriol as you can possibly cram in to a comment. And if you want to see the worst version of this, you should go to comment sections. That's why I love this meme. It says, meanwhile, in the comment section, you get a picture of all-out warfare. This is true enough on Facebook, but it's at its absolute worst on YouTube. How many of you guys like to watch videos on YouTube? Is that a thing that you guys do? Have you noticed that no matter what a video is about, there will be someone on there saying something horrible to everybody else? I mean, literally, go look up a video of like cute puppies playing together. Do, do this as an experiment after church and tell me if I'm right. And you'll find somebody in there who on a video of, of adorable puppies playing together is like, puppies are dumb and you're dumb if you like puppies, <laughs> right? You know that's true. That's why this is my favorite one. It's a really bad image, but I, I love this. It's Simba talking to Mufasa, and Simba asks him, but what about that shadowy place? And Mufasa says, that's the comment section, Simba. You must never go there. <laughs> and it's true. You look at the internet, you look at comments on Facebook posts, comments on YouTube videos, and you see an entire society that's built around being slow to listen and quick to speak. And into that world, James says, no, 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 Christians, you should be characterized by the opposite, that you should be slow to speak and quick to listen. Take things in. Wait. Speak when you're sure of yourself. Speak when there's something positive to say. It says, in light of that, therefore, 
Put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. That word meekness or humility is another important word, I think, for our society that we live in. Because first century Greco-Roman culture, just like our culture today, did not really celebrate humility as something to like be honored or like a virtue that we should strive for. Humility kind of meant you were a wimp. And again, depending on what area of life you're at work in today, we sort of pretend like we like humility in the modern world, in the Western world. But if we're honest with ourselves, look at the world around you. Do we celebrate and champion people who are actually humble? Or is it people who are arrogant and aggressive and loud who end up getting attention, right? And again, especially on the internet. It's hard to be humble on the internet. I think a really humble person probably just wouldn't go there. <laughs> so James says, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. This, um, this word put away and, and especially the words filthiness and rampant or excessive wickedness all carry the same imagery of almost taking off your wickedness and filthiness like old dirty clothes. That now that you're a Christian, be humble, receive the implanted word, the word of truth that Christians have that has been placed down inside of you and take off the filthiness and rampant wickedness. Let that implanted word grow and replace those things. It's a beautiful verse. But if we stopped here, there's potential for a really dangerous misunderstanding. Because so far, James has said, all right, slow to speak, quick to listen, be humble, take off filthiness, and receive the implanted word. And if that's where James's thought ended, then it would seem like all we're supposed to do is just sit back and, and take it in. So go to church, listen to sermons, read the Bible, take in information, and that's what you're supposed to do as a Christian. Slow down your speech and just receive. Just receive the implanted word. But James isn't done. He says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. James says, receive the implanted word, but don't just receive. When you've taken that in, do something in response. And that seems really simple and really obvious, but if we're honest with ourselves, we know it is really easy to receive a piece of information and do absolutely nothing with it, right? And to describe this, James uses this really interesting metaphor that's sort of hard for us to understand in the modern world. He says it's like somebody who looks in a mirror and walks away and forgets what he looks like. Our mirrors in the modern world are awesome. They're like, you can just glance in it real quick and you get a crystal clear image of what you look like. This is a, a mirror, an actual mirror from the first century Roman world. I mean, this one's like jacked up and oxidized and stuff. It wouldn't have looked like that back then, but you can see it was made out of bronze or brass or something like that. And they would polish it as shiny and clean as they could possibly get it. And you could sort of see yourself in that. You guys know what I'm talking about? Like if you look at like, like a, the, your towel rack rod that's like a shiny silver or brass and you can sort of see yourself in it or like a doorknob or something like that but it's not crystal clear it's not like looking in one of our modern mirrors it's why paul says we see now as in a mirror dimly because the reflection was dim you had to really look hard at it to actually get anything out of it and the purpose was exactly what the purpose is now to see how you look and do something to fix what you see there right so james says hearing the word and not doing it it's like somebody who studies themselves in the mirror, who like takes the time to really look and see what's going on there, 
and then maybe sees like a giant piece of food on their face or like a giant piece of spinach sticking out from between their teeth and then walks away and doesn't fix it. You see how ridiculous that is? Why, then why look? That's the James point. Why look? Why receive information from a mirror and do absolutely nothing in response to it? There's a speaker and author named Francis Chan who has a, a, an amazing metaphor for the same idea. He talks about how, imagine if you went up to one of your children and said, hey, go clean your room. And then two hours went by, and you went up to check on the progress of the room cleaning. And when you got there, you found that the room was still completely in shambles and nothing had been picked up at all. And you go to your son or daughter and you say, hey, what, what happened? Why, why didn't you clean your room? And they say, oh, dad, I just wanted to thank you so much for that. It was actually amazing. We spent the last two hours, I got all our brothers and sisters together, and we, we sat and we talked about what it would really mean if we cleaned our room. And we actually studied the original meaning of the word clean, the original meaning of the word room, what a room was like when you were a kid. And we talked all about like what cleaning our room would be like, and we left just so convicted and like, feeling like, man, we can actually do something, and it's just, it was so refreshing. So thank you so much for telling us that. What would you say to that kid? <laughs> yeah, great, but you didn't clean your room, right? Obviously, it's, it's kind of a silly metaphor, but it's powerful at the same time. Because how many of us do that as Christians? I mean, you've got to understand the kind of like painful irony of me thinking about this while I'm like studying multiple commentaries on this verse. You know what I mean? Going like, I'm just taking in information. Am I actually doing something with it? It's very easy to think that you are a religious person because of the things that you know about God. And James is challenging that, saying you can receive a lot of information, but if you're just a hearer, if you just take it in and you leave and nothing changes about you, then you might as well be somebody who looks in the mirror and sees a giant piece of food on their face and walks away and doesn't do anything about it. He might as well be a kid who was told to clean his room and, and didn't clean it. It says instead, verse 25, the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. There's a lot of debate about exactly what James means by the perfect law here. He's a, a Jewish author writing to a predominantly Jewish audience. This is like early, early church when the majority of Christians, if not all Christians, depending on what you believe about when this book was written, would have been Jewish. So that word law carries a really strong connotation to them. I think, and, and a lot of scholars think that when James says the perfect law, the law of liberty, he's talking about the entire revealed word of God as kind of interpreted and re-explained by Jesus. So he's talking about like the new covenant, the Christian understanding of God's will for humanity. And he says, if you look into that and persevere, and I love that word, by the way, because it doesn't make it sound like it's easy, right? He's not saying like whoever looks into the perfect law and the very next day does all of it perfectly. He says, whoever looks at the law of liberty, the way that Jesus has revealed he wants his people to behave, and you persevere and act in response to what you see there. You'll be blessed. And he says he'll be blessed in his doing. And that's exactly what it sounds like. It's blessed in the process of doing that. And you guys know what that's like, right? It doesn't, it's not always that way, but you've had experiences where you do the right thing. Sometimes it's the hard thing, whether it's serving somebody or being honest with somebody, and you actually feel like a sense of blessing just in having done that. In first service, I talked about my friend Scott Weaver who goes to church here and volunteers a ton. And if you ask him why he spends so much time 
volunteering, he'll probably say something like, oh, it's actually selfish because I get way more out of it than the people that I help. And again, that's not always the case. Sometimes it's brutal and difficult, but he says, in general, man, if you take in God's revealed will and you respond to it with action, you'll be blessed in doing that. And we're, no, we're going to see from the rest of the book of James and, and, of course, from the rest of the New Testament, he doesn't mean, like, blessed with a bunch of fancy cars and shiny stuff that you want. That's not the point. It's the act of doing the will of God that is the blessing. Now, here is where James is kind of building all of this up to what I, I believe is the thesis statement of this entire letter. And it's a really famous verse. There's a good chance that a lot of you have heard it. And we're going to park here for a while because this verse is so crucial and so misused. And it's caused so many problems, I believe, by the way that it's been misused and and improperly handled by the church. He says, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Pause there for a second before we get to the the big verse, James 1.27. He says, if you think you're religious, and again, it's exactly what it sounds like in English. This is about the subjective opinion of the person talking. If you think that you're religious, but you don't have control of your tongue, then your religion is a waste of time. We're not really going to spend a whole lot of time here because James is going to take this same theme and develop it in way greater detail in chapter 3. And he actually uses a really similar metaphor to what he uses here. What's a bridle for? A horse. What does it do for the horse? It lets you do what? Control it, right? It's a method of controlling something that is powerful and dangerous if you don't control it right. In chapter 3, he's going to talk about controlling the tongue like a rudder on a giant ship. Same idea. Something that's kind of other than you and really powerful and really dangerous. That's all I'll say for now because we'll talk more about that in chapter 3. But it's, it's a really powerful image that your, your, your tongue is like an out-of-control horse that needs a bridle on it. And he says, what's religion that's not worthless look like? Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. That word visit means a lot more than just like go say hi. It doesn't just mean literally like go and say, oh, hey, good to see you. It really carries the nuance of caring for someone. It's the same word that the author of Hebrews uses when he's quoting Psalm 8 that says, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him. Same word, that, that it gets translated visit here. And there's a bunch of other examples like that that show that it, it means caring for these people. He says orphans and widows, and um, you know, there's no doubt that this means literally orphans and widows, but it means more than that. That's the, the category that represents the most needy, the most desperate, the most vulnerable people in that world. And amazingly, that hasn't changed much in 2,000 years. That's still a great description of some of the most vulnerable and the most desperate, especially around the world today. But understand, he means more than that. And this list isn't meant to be exhaustive in any way. It's not like these are the only things you do as a Christian. These are the two categories. You care for the desperate in their affliction or distress, and you keep yourself unstained from the world. I think a helpful way of thinking about these two categories is to think of it in terms of the vertical and the horizontal aspects of what being a Christian is. 
The vertical is this relationship and loyalty that you have to God, that you give your allegiance to a God who has specific ways that he asks his people to live, and you take those seriously because he's your king. That's what keeping yourself unstained from the world means. You also see this aspect in what Jesus said was the greatest commandment. You guys remember what the greatest commandment is? Love the Lord your God with everything about you, heart, soul, mind, strength, everything. The horizontal is how the Christian interacts with the world around them, caring for the needy, caring for the vulnerable, being there for people who need you. And that's what Jesus said was the second greatest commandment. Remember what that one was? Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God with everything in you. Love your neighbor as yourself. I think it's also what Paul means when he says, be in the world, but not of the world. You see this same theme all over the New Testament. The Christians have two categories of behavior that are definitive. I mean, literally definitive. These, these are what it means to be a Christian. Is that you are loyal to God. You do the things God says to do. You don't do the things God says not to do. And you care about the world around you. And I cannot tell you, many of you know this. You know this from personal experience from churches you grew up in. The damage that is done when one of these two things is prioritized at the exclusion of the other. Many of you grow, grow up in a church that only cared about the vertical relationship and was like completely isolated from the world around them. You know what I'm talking about. How about churches that, that only care about the lost and the needy and, and everything else can com get completely out of whack in terms of lifestyle and morality and, and living in accordance with the commandments of Jesus. They're equally dangerous. I actually, um, I, this still happens all the time, but I saw just a horrible example of this um, it, was, it really upset me, actually. I was, I was at a conference in Texas. It was a conference about foster and orphan care. I, I work with an organization called Foster the Bay that our church partners with, foster care organization, incredible people. And we went to this conference together, the leadership team, and um, a really well-meaning organization that, that does wonderful things that was a part of the conference was giving out these free handbags if you filled out a survey of some kind. I don't remember what it was because I, I didn't do it because I'm lazy and I have plenty of bags already. And uh, that's not true, by the way. Now, this isn't a picture of the bag because I didn't get one, but this is exactly what the bag said. Exactly. Punctuation and everything. It said, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, period, close quote, James 1.27. That's a beautiful thought, right? Religion that is pure before God is visit widows and orphans in their distress, case closed. What's wrong with this? That's not what James 1.27 says. That's half of what James 1.27 says. I mean, it was printed on the bag with a period, just like that. And I saw like all these people walking by with it, and I was like, your bag says James 1.27, but it's not James 1.27. And that has huge implications for how you live your life. It's half the picture. And there are entire, there, I mean, man, there's individual Christians but there's entire churches and, and entire denominations and entire movements of Christianity throughout history and today who I believe have gone completely sideways because they think that is all that it means to be a Christian. And it's not. There, you know, in, in history, there was a movement called the social gospel movement that kind of illustrated this perfectly. And what ends up happening is people really care 
They genuinely do, and they do great things for the hungry and the thirsty and the desperate and the needy and the vulnerable, but they completely lose sight of the vertical relationship with God, sometimes to the point of not being theistic anymore, of not even believing that there is a God. Sometimes it's just that, man, your lifestyle can be completely out of whack, and there's a bunch of sin in your life that you're not dealing with and not convicted about and don't care about, but because you're doing this, you're okay, because that's what, what James said pure religion is. And I'm not just picking on that side, because if you Google image search James 127, you'll also see this. Refuse to let the world corrupt you, James 127. I, I'm not going to nerd out too hard about this, but there's a lot wrong with this. Like the verbs are wrong in this translation of James 127, and that makes me really angry, but it's not the main problem, so we won't talk about that. Refuse to let the world corrupt you, James 127. What happens if that's what you think Christianity is? What kind of church could you end up being? What kind of Christian could you end up being? This like hyper-morally focused, don't ever get anything out of whack because I have to be completely pure and I can't let the world have any corrupting influence. So I keep the world away. And our churches can do that. Individual Christians can do that. And again, entire denominations and movements of Christianity have done that. They've become self-protective, insular people who do nothing for the world around them and ignore the very clear and direct call of God to care for orphans. That is not what James 1.27 says. That's not what James 1.27 says either. This is what James 1.27 says. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. Visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Keep oneself unstained from the world. And to do one of those things and not the other is as ridiculous as being a teacher who only gives out homework and never teaches anything. To be a teacher means you teach and you evaluate their work. To be a Christian means you care about the desperate and the vulnerable and you care about God's commands for your life. It's both. And it has to be both. I mean, do you guys realize, like, if you go and read in the prophets, or, man, in the book of Genesis from the very beginning, God always, always cares about the desperate and the vulnerable from the beginning. He's mad about Israel, or mad at Israel, about a whole number of things. But one thing that you will see over and over again when God is talking to his people, Israel, through the prophets is, you don't practice justice and righteousness. You don't care for the fatherless. You don't care for the widow. But man, he's also mad about the second half. You worship the idols of other nations. You do the kinds of things they do. You don't obey the things that I've told you to do. And it's the same thing in the New Testament. The authors of the New Testament are incredibly concerned for the poor. Jesus himself is with the poor. He's with the vulnerable. But the commands of the New Testament consistently are also that your lifestyle should be in line with the way that God wants it. Now, this entire book is basically practical application, but just in terms of practical application of this for today, I want you to think about yourself as a Christian, those of you who are Christians, and, and as we always say, if you're, if you're here and you're not one, my gosh, you are so welcome. We love having you here. Continue engaging with this stuff. But for those of you who are, are Christians, which of these two things do you think in your life you have prioritized to the exclusion or the downplaying of the other? I mean, all of us probably need to work on both of them, but what's the area that if you're honest with yourself, you, you might go, man, you know what? I have been overly self-protective. I have thought a whole lot about my own morality, but done very little for other people around me. 
And maybe for you, the action that you need to take in response to this passage is say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna actually evaluate my lifestyle. Maybe I need to control my spending a little bit more so that I can support nonprofit organizations that help the enslaved, that help orphans and foster children and widows and help bring water to the thirsty and food to the hungry. Maybe I actually will change my life so that I can do that in that small, simple way just through my finances. Maybe it means giving some of your time, volunteering at a place like Informed Choices that helps women who are facing crisis pregnancy situations who need help. The church should be there to help them. Or helping out with an organization like Foster the Bay that I talked about earlier. Our church partners with them. I don't know if you guys know this, but as a result of of our partnership with Foster the Bay, at at least partially as a result of that, our church has seven foster families in it right now. And there are five foster kids that are part of this church, part of our community because of Foster the Bay. We talked about that, you know, the the last couple of weeks, but that's a really practical thing you can do. You might not be ready to foster children right now, but maybe you can jump in and be a support friend. I I talked to a woman yesterday at the Regeneration Forum, the conference that that we had in San Jose yesterday, and um, she was a a woman who works with Foster the Bay, so I'm friends with her, and we were talking, and I, I never knew until yesterday, I've known her for a while, I never knew that she has no biological kids of her own, but she's fostered nine children. And she said, you know, Foster the Bay's big celebration, which was beautiful and, and amazing, is that in two years, there were 100 foster kids from Foster the Bay families, all in, in Christian communities and in Christian families. Really exciting. Um, but she goes, yeah, my husband and I were just talking about the fact that we're 10% of the, of the Foster the Bay stat. And, it's, and they're on, in the process of adopting three of them. They're taking that seriously. Again, you don't have to, this is what our whole last series was about. You don't have to, like, be like, well, I guess to be a Christian, I have to become a foster parent. But you do, it's, it is part of the definition of a Christian to be involved in that kind of work. And maybe it's a smaller step first, like donating or being a support friend. And then there are probably people in the room who you're like, no, I'm generous, I help a lot, I'm, I'm good with my money, I, I, I donate, I give my time. But if I'm honest, there's stuff in my life that is absolutely out of accord with what Jesus taught about how his followers are supposed to live. I'm gonna be crystal clear here, I'm not talking about like struggling with sin because we all do that and we all continue hopefully to grow in that as Christians, but man, I'm talking about stuff in your life that you've lost conviction over, that you don't even think about it anymore, that it's just become normal, it's become part of your life, but if you're honest, you know that it's out of line. And I would tell you, that's half the definition that James gives of what a Christian is is prioritizing this stuff. And so just like the other thing, this is not something you do on your own. It's not like you leave and go, all right, well, I feel convicted about this, so I'm gonna go home and kind of muscle this out and I'm gonna change the way I am tomorrow. It doesn't work like that, you guys. Christianity is a group effort. It's a team sport. Some of you guys need to come to our Celebrate Recovery program. It's in this room every Monday night at seven. And it's, it's not just for drug and alcohol 12-step type stuff. It is for that. It's a great resource for that. But it's more than that. It's for a whole host of what they, they call hurts, habits, and hang-ups. It's a great group that meets here every Monday. Come be a part of that. Talk to a pastor. Talk to a counselor or your spouse or a friend, somebody that you respect and trust to start getting this stuff in line. And, and here's, as we kind of start to, to bring this to a close, It's like such a preacher thing to say, huh? We're going to start to bring this to a close. (laughs) Because if I say bring it to a close, you guys are going to be like, all right, well, then you've got three minutes, man. But I'm just starting to. 
I want to be crystal clear about this, and we'll probably say things like this a lot in this series because James' letter is so direct and, and confrontational. James is writing to Christians. And that's incredibly important, again, especially for those of you who are here who wouldn't say that about yourself. Because this is not a description of how you become a Christian. This is not a description of how you become a member of the family of God. This is not the thing that saves you. This is not the thing that takes you from being God's enemy to being God's child. You cannot possibly love widows and orphans enough for that. We are saved by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Period. End of story. That's why we're in the family of God. That's why we're loved and accepted by God. This is what Christians do after that's happened. Please, please do not get that cart and that horse backwards. This isn't the stuff you do to earn God's love. This is the stuff who people who are, who are in the family of God do. This is the description of what people who are Christians make their lives about. And that really, man, there's something about the gospel that it's, it's this incredibly beautiful picture of a free gift that brings you from an outsider, from an enemy of God to a family member of God. And it's so beautiful and so powerful, but so many of us just stop there. And maybe we come to church and receive. But ask yourself, am I doing anything in response to what I'm receiving from the Bible, from my small group, from church? Don't be a hearer only, but be a doer. And ask the, uh, the ushers to pass out communion. This is something that we do every week, and it's, this is something that, that is uh, a Christian activity. It's something that people who are followers of Jesus participate in. So it, honestly, if you're not a Christian, if you wouldn't use that to describe yourself, if you're just checking this stuff out and curious, please feel free to let that go by. Don't feel weird about it at all. Um, but for those of us who are Christians, we take this to remember the work of Jesus. And I think it's such an important and powerful and helpful, even for me, just working through this, it's an, it's an important and powerful way to draw this subject to a close. Because not only is Jesus the thing that makes us righteous, the thing that makes us right before God, it's not just his work that saves us. His work is also the ultimate example of what James 1.27 actually looks like. Think about the life of Jesus and you will get the perfect quintessential picture of what a James 1.27 life would look like. Jesus has everything. He's, he's God himself, and he comes to earth as a helpless, screaming baby born into poverty and insignificance, um, under threat from the greatest empire the world had ever known at that time. He comes poor, and he spends his entire life on behalf of the poor and the desperate and the needy. He's around the needy and the desperate so much that he actually gets like himself incriminated. People are constantly saying stuff like, he must be a drunk, he hangs out with drunks all the time. And yet, unstained. When Jesus gets tempted after his baptism by Satan himself, offering him all the things that humanity has always caved in for since the beginning of the story of scripture. And Jesus, time and time again, says, no, I do the will of God, not my will. And just, man, unstained, start to finish. And at the cross, you see Jesus in a moment of ultimate sacrifice for the desperate, right? You and me, people who could never help ourselves, the most helpless, giving everything for them. 
And in that moment of, of ultimate giving, the first half of James 1.27, he remains unstained. No desire for revenge, no hate in his heart, even for the people who are killing him. He looks at his, his torturers, his mockers, and he says, Father, forgive them. And so we have in Jesus this incredible example of what it looks like to love the lost, to love the least of these, and to do it in a way that stays in, in complete accordance with the will of God. Make no mistake, you guys, the, the New Testament is crystal clear. Nobody is expected to like go from horrible monster to perfect, sinless person who never makes a single mistake again in one day. But the trajectory of the Christian is those two things. You care for the least of these and you keep yourself unstained from the world. So I'd like to invite you guys to stand with me as we take this and let it be fuel for us as we remember the sacrificial death of Jesus that saved us. Let it be fuel for us that propels us into a life of imitation of his work. We take the bread in recognition of the broken body of Jesus Christ for us to save us. And we take the cup as a representation of the blood of Jesus spilled for us for the salvation of sinners, for the remission of sins, for the starting of a new covenant where, Jeremiah said, God's will would be written on the hearts of his people. The implanted word that James talked about. Let this be the thing that reminds us of our security in Christ, regardless of our mistakes, and that propels us beyond our mistakes to new life in imitation of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, your word is, is convicting. Your word is powerful. Your word has this ability to expose us. And Lord, I just pray, first and foremost, that as we go through this book, and even as we wrestle with what we heard today from your word, that you would remind us of the greatness of your grace, that you don't wait till we're perfect to save us, but that while we were sinners, you died for us, that you love the broken, you love the imperfect enough to die for us and save us. Help us not to get the cart and the horse backwards, not to think that our obedience is what saves us, but Lord, for those of us who trust in your son for salvation, I pray that we would take James' words seriously, that we would not be hearers only, but doers, that we wouldn't be unbalanced Christians who, who only are concerned about half of what you said the Christian life was about, but that we would take responsibility for both of them and that you would set us on a path to growing in both of those areas. Lord, I pray that we would not be people who, who look into a mirror and walk away and don't fix our face, that we wouldn't be people who look into your word and walk away and do nothing. We don't want to just learn new things, Lord. We want to be more like your son. Thank you for your great sacrifice for us. May it change us. May this church become a community of people who love the world around us sacrificially and who love you enough to obey and follow you with ever-increasing success. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. As you go today...